It is good to be with you, and I invite you to continue to worship with me by turning in God's Word to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. In the 17th century, so late 1600s, there was a man by the name of John Bunyan, perhaps a name familiar to some here, and he penned what became one of the best and still is, best-selling books in the English-speaking world. And that book, of course, is The Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan, in The Pilgrim's Progress, he basically describes, by way of spiritual allegory, the journey of a man who is named, appropriately enough, Pilgrim. His journey from the city of destruction all the way to the celestial, heavenly city, and so Pilgrim enters through the narrow gate, and he is exhorted to stay on the narrow way. And if he remains on the narrow way, he will arrive safely eventually at his promised destination, the celestial city. At one point in the journey, as he's on the narrow way, he comes face to face with a hill called difficulty. Two men have joined him on his journey. These two men did not enter through the narrow gate. They have not remained on the narrow path, the narrow way. Their names are hypocrite and formalist. And as soon as they see the hill called difficulty, staring them in the face, they veer to the left, they veer to the right, they decide to take a different path, but a path that inevitably leads to destruction. Pilgrim, for his part, his destination clearly in view, the celestial city. All that he has left clearly behind him, the city of destruction. He stays on the narrow way. And he begins that slow, arduous, difficult journey up that hill named Difficulty. Now, Bunyan is pastoral in including that little story in the Pilgrim's Progress. And he is being pastoral because he is trying to convey a truth of reality that the Lord Jesus articulated centuries ago in John chapter 16, and it is simply this. In this world, you will have tribulation. We might not want to hear that. We can run away and pretend to be in denial. But there it is from the lips of the one we claim to follow, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In this world... You will have tribulation. There will be hills called difficulty. I'm not a betting man. You'll be relieved to hear that. But if I were, I would wager that just about everyone in this room right now, it's resonating with you. You can think back to the not so far distant past. And yeah, you were there climbing that hill difficulty. For some of you right now, you are on that slope upward. Up you are going. And for some, as you take a stock of your life for months, perhaps even years now, if you were to write one word over your life, it would be that term, 
difficulty. And I can guarantee each and every one of us, myself included, that uh, although it might be smooth sailing at present, there will at some point come that hill called difficulty. It is why as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in need of spiritual strength, do we not? Spiritual strength so that we are able to stay on the narrow way. Spiritual strength so that in those times of testing, those tests of faith and endurance, we do climb those difficulties. The dreaded test result comes back positive. A friend no longer returns our calls because of our commitment to the Lord Jesus. Temptation knocks hard, constantly upon the door of our hearts. A childhood dream lies shattered on the floor. A loved one makes an absolute mess of his life as we look on helplessly. Clouds of confusion set in and darkness overwhelms like a flood. The physical pain is chronic. A pandemic turns our life completely upside down. Marriage falls apart. Death comes calling. A hill named difficulty. And what we need, what we need more than anything else, to sojourn faithfully from the city of destruction to the celestial city is spiritual strength. It is Paul's theme as he draws this glorious epistle to the Romans to a close. It is his theme. And listen to what he says in this beautiful doxology in which he is praising, admiring, worshiping our great God above. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Did you pick up on that word right at the outset of the doxology? Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen. That's what we're after, spiritual strength. And we want to glean from the Apostle Paul what this is. How this is produced in our lives and how our God does enable us, capacitate us, and equip us to climb those hills called difficulty. And so three things concerning this term strength as we find it in our text. Here is the first, the nature of this strength. What is it? What does it mean to be strengthened? It's interesting when we delve into this text and when we embark on a little bit of a word study, we discover that the original term 
translated strengthen here is found in a few other places in the New Testament. Oddly enough, back in Luke chapter 16, we find it. There the Lord Jesus is telling a parable. And he introduces us to two men. Do you remember this? A poor man named Lazarus and a rich man who remains nameless. And this rich man, he has lived a self-indulgent life, completely self-absorbed. It could only be summarized in the word idolatrous. But Lazarus, he is a God-fear. Both men die. And in this parable, the Lord Jesus says that they go to their respective places. Lazarus goes to the side of Abraham. And it's a place of rest. It's a place of peace. It is a place of delight. But the rich man, he goes to Hades, a place of torment. And there the rich man lifts his eyes and he sees Lazarus. He sees Abraham and he calls out to Abraham and begs him to send Lazarus to dip his fingers in the water, to touch his tongue, to quench his thirst. And Abraham responds, impossible. Why? Because there is a great chasm fixed. There's our word. Fixed between you and me. That's the idea of strengthen. It is to be fixed in place. It is to be steadfast. It is to be immovable. I was watching a documentary some years ago now concerning a little tidal island off the northeast shore of Scotland. It's called Bell Rock, a tidal island, meaning you can see the rock for a certain number of hours each day, and then for the remainder of the day, the tide comes in and the rock is hidden from view. And in the late 1700s, it was responsible for dozens of shipwrecks every year. So finally, the government decided it would be a good idea to build a lighthouse on Bell Rock. It took years to construct it because they could only build it when the tide was out, but there it has stood for over 250 years, this light tower on Bell Rock, steadfast, fixed in place, immovable. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to him who is able to make you immovable, to him who is able to fix you in place, steadfast, it's used in another place in Scripture. We can go to Luke chapter 9. And there the Lord Jesus is preparing His disciples for what is an eventuality that He is going to the cross. And there we discover, there we read that He set His face to the cross. Set His face. It's the same word in the original language. It conveys this idea of what? determination. He has an end in view. He has a goal before him. He has a calling upon his life, and he will not be moved to the right. He will not be moved to the left. His gaze is fixed on where he is going. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. This is the meaning of the term. This is the nature of what it means to be strengthened. It is for God himself to fix us in place, our feet firmly planted, that whatever may come in life, we are immovable. It is not a denial of the pain. 
It is not to deny the sorrow and the tears and the anguish. It is not to deny that at times there are moments of doubt. It is not to deny that confusion at times might settle upon us and overwhelm us like a flood. But it is to understand that even during those seasons of life, as we are on this journey, and as we encounter a hill called difficulty, that we remain fixed in place. We remain immovable. We remain steadfast. That is the nature of this strengthening. Notice, secondly, the cause of this strengthening. Let me read the entire text again for you and listen please for three descriptions of our God. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you catch the threefold description of our God? Firstly, Paul describes him right there at the outset of verse 25 as him who is able. Him who is able. He is celebrating something that Scripture makes clear from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. That power belongs to God and belongs to God alone. Paul has celebrated this even in this epistle to the Romans. We can go back, for example, to the end of chapter 11. And there at the end of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul makes a most startling statement. At times, he packs such theological truth into just this, these pithy little sentences. And there he declares that from him, from God, from him, and through him, and to him, are all things. He is the God who is able. From him are all things, meaning what? He is the efficient cause of absolutely everything that exists. All things are through him, meaning what? He is the providential cause by which all things continue to exist. And all things are to him, meaning what? That absolutely everything in existence exists for one purpose, one purpose alone, one glorious end. And it is the eternal glory of God. In other words, Paul is saying that the entire created order is simply the stage upon which God has chosen to reveal, make known his glory. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. Oh, he is able the second truth Paul celebrates concerning God, right there towards the end of verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God, a God without beginning, a God without end, as the psalmist puts it from everlasting to everlasting. 
You are God, a God who is above all succession of time. Or as James celebrates it, we celebrate that every good and perfect gift comes from above. From whom? The Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. It sounds like gibberish. What's he saying? In whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. He's pointing to the stars and the sun and the moon. And he's saying, look, we know the stars, the sun and moon, they cast shadows upon the earth. I mean, night and day being the most obvious instance of this. And there are these constant shadows and movement from day to night. Why? Because all of those heavenly bodies are in constant flux. They are moving. But our God, from whom all good comes, in Him there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Why? Because He's eternally immutable. He is the only and blessed Sovereign, says the Apostle Paul, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. He's the great I Am, the completely transcendent God, this glorious, infinite being, eternal in Himself. He is able. He is eternal. And notice the third thing Paul celebrates concerning this God, right there in verse 27. To the only wise God. Oh, by one pure, simple, eternal act of His infinite understanding. He knows all things perfectly, all things immediately, and all things distinctly. Oh, what is our wisdom in comparison to His? When was the last time you were on an airplane? Feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? A couple of years, maybe. But you can recall the last time you were on an airplane, and there you sat, probably in economy, Maybe an aisle seat. And just think back. What could you see? Back of the chair in front of you, maybe the top of a head bobbing up and down. Whoever was sitting on your right, whoever was sitting on your left, steward, stewardess going up and down the aisle. If you're fortunate enough to be by the window, you could look out there and see the wing. That's it. What was the pilot's view from his perspective? Or even more to the point, what is the air traffic controller's view of things? There he or she sits in that tower. Every plane on the tarmac, every plane taxiing in, every plane taxiing out, and there on the screens in front of him, every plane on its journey in the sky, wherever it is, the comparison falls apart, but I hope you get at least some inkling of where I'm going with this. When we compare our wisdom to God's wisdom, we are like little children standing by the seashore trying to fit the ocean into a bucket. We cannot do it. You're speaking of a God who is infinite in understanding and a God whose wisdom far eclipses ours. Oh, He is able. He is eternal. And He is the only wise God. Do you know what that means? It means a lot of things. I'm just going to give you one. 
In the language of Psalms 18, verse 30, I think it is. If it's not verse 30, it's somewhere around there. It means the following. God is able, okay? God is eternal. I got it. And God is only wise. It means this. His way is perfect. You know what that means, Christian? That means his providential dealings with you and his providential dealings with me are absolutely perfect. Do we really believe that? His way with Job was perfect. Even when Job sat there scraping the boils from his flesh. His way with Joseph was perfect. Even when he was unjustly accused unjustly imprisoned and sat there in that dark prison cell. His way with Naomi was perfect even as she stood there shedding tears beside the graves of her husband and two sons. It means his way with David was perfect even when David was sneaking out the back door of the city of Jerusalem because his rebellious son was advancing with his invading army, his way is perfect. And my friend, his way is perfect because he is able. Power belongs to him and to him alone. He is eternal, therefore immutable, and therefore faithful. And he is wise all wisdom and to him belongs wisdom alone that is the cause of our strengthening we're clear as to its nature it means to be fixed in place we're clear as to who causes it it's not you and it's certainly not me it is this god who is able this god who is eternal this god who is wise and now thirdly please note the means of this strengthening. Here we're answering the question, how? How does this work? How does the God do this in my life as I'm coming face to face with a hill called difficulty? It's right there in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, here's the how, here's the means, according to my gospel. That's how. According to my gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. What gospel is this? According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, the gospel, it's there in the Old Testament, but it's not yet fully revealed. It's somewhat concealed, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, preached, heralded, proclaimed according to the command of the eternal God. To bring about the obedience of faith. And that is what Paul has unpacked in this letter, in this epistle, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. Right through now to this concluding doxology. The Apostle Paul has expounded, articulated, defended, and declared the gospel. Oh, he's made it clear, hasn't he, that there's a problem. We have a problem. And he has made it painfully clear, for example, back in chapter 3. And he has declared there that there is none good. 
No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. We have a problem. And Scripture, scripture doesn't mix words here, does it? Scripture is painfully, it's acutely clear as to man's predicament before this God. That we are riddled with sin. And because of this sin, we have all turned aside. And together we have become worthless. I know this, this is very difficult for, for the modern mind to compute. In our day, this is, this is the stumbling block for millions. This idea that as I stand before God, I am actually unacceptable in His sight. That as far as God is concerned, I've never done anything good in my life. It is the stumbling block for millions. You just imagine for a moment, this is completely hypothetical. You imagine for a moment that I own a, a famous painting. Van Gogh or someone like that. Don't ask me to name any other famous artist. That's about it. Van Gogh. Picasso. There's another one. I've got a famous painting and there it is proudly displayed in the living room of my home. And on a Friday evening, I have a bunch of guests in. All properly social distance, of course. But one of these guests, for some inconceivable reason, grabs a black magic marker, walks over to this painting, and scribbles all over it. Well, my back is turned. I was in the kitchen. I come out. I see what he has done. I'm absolutely horrified. He notes my horror registers with him. He quickly runs over to the magazine stand, grabs the latest Canadian Tire magazine, tears a page out of it, grabs some glue, and glues this page from the Canadian Tire magazine to that Van Gogh and then turns to me and says, look, it's as good as new. It's not new. What is it, folks? It is ruined. We are ruined in the sight of God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, useless. That is the problem. The problem is compounded by this. Paul tells us back in Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 16, that uh, there's a day of judgment coming. A day of judgment coming. And this is perhaps, I think this is the, one of the most terrifying statements in all of Scripture. It is this. A day of judgment is coming when God will judge the secrets of men. Not our outward appearance, not what necessarily what we've done, what we haven't done, but the secrets of men, our secrets. Oh, friend, what are your secrets? Don't tell me. I really actually don't want to hear them as you don't want to hear mine. Our secrets will be laid bare before an all-wise, all-seeing God. Every thought. Every thought, every impulse, every desire, every inclination. Oh, let me repeat it because Paul makes it so clear. There's a problem, and the problem is sin. Paul makes it abundantly clear also in this epistle, though, doesn't he, that there is a solution. There is a remedy. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, he states it so eloquently. He says that God displayed Christ publicly. As a propitiation by 
his blood. Or as he states in his epistle to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come. In other words, when it had come time for this eternal God to accomplish his eternal plan of redemption, when the fullness of time had come, what did he do? He sent forth his son, born of a woman. It's the incarnation. Born under the law, under the curse. The curse that condemns us to death. Born of a woman. Born under the law. To redeem those. Rescue those. Deliver those who are under the law. That we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons. He sent forth the spirit of his son. Into our hearts. By whom we cry. Abba Father. There we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this glorious plan of redemption. And God's plan to redeem, save, rescue, deliver His people from sin and from the wages of sin. And it all transpires there upon Calvary's cross. Where we see the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth. The one who is perfect, the one who is blameless, the one who is without sin, becoming sin for us, becoming a curse for us, bearing the judgment of God for us. But you know it, don't you? I trust I'm preaching to the choir. Maybe not. You know it's coming, don't you? Yes, there is a problem. And yes, there is this glorious remedy solution. There is a requirement, isn't there? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? We could go to many different places in this epistle, but what does he make so clear? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. I think as the psalmist David himself put it so beautifully, movingly, in Psalm chapter 51, is it verse 7? As he reflects on his sin and as he is under acute conviction for his sin and rebellion against God, he utters these precious words, O Lord, O Lord, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. An old Puritan, an old English Puritan put it as follows, and it took me years to really believe this, and I still struggle with it at times. He stated the following, God is more willing to pardon than punish. Do you really believe that? God is more willing to pardon than punish. And he has told you so at Calvary's cross. He can't make it any clearer than that. Where he publicly displayed as a propitiation by his blood, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're familiar, I trust it, many of us anyway, with that great parable, that story of the prodigal son, right? And there's that father with his two sons, and the, the younger son comes to him that uh, terrible day. 
and uh, says to his father, look, um, you're taking too long to die. Basically what he says to him, I'm reading between the lines, but that's the gist of it. You're taking too long to die and I want my inheritance now. And his father gives him the inheritance and off that young man goes and he squanders it all, lives a degenerate life. And then while he's working in the muck and the mire, the pigsty that day, he comes to his senses. I'll return to my father's home. And off he goes on that journey and we read in that parable, but the father is sitting there and he's looking down the path. And he sees his son coming afar off. What does he do? Wait for his son to get close enough where he can grovel before him? Put together a checklist of a hundred things. Well, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Well, maybe we'll talk about what's happened. Does he browbeat him? Does he berate him? What does the father do? As soon as he sees him. His figure, I don't know how he recognized him, his, his gait, the way he walked, I, I don't know. But as soon as he sees him coming, what does his father do? He runs to him. Why? Because God is far more willing to pardon than to punish. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. My friends, that is how God, who is able, who is eternal, who is wise, strengthens us. According to my gospel and what I am doing right now, the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's it. This is the means as to how he strengthens us. How he helps us just put both feet in place. I will not be moved. Whatever's coming my way. And however difficult it's going to be and the sleepless nights and the, the anxiety that is undoubtedly going to accompany it and the countless tears, despite it all, I remain immovable as I climb this hill difficulty. Why? Because my eyes are fixed on the gospel. My eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I realize that the gospel remedies my greatest ailment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I realize that the gospel satisfies my greatest longing. The Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that I am indeed a child of God. The gospel imparts hope for eternity. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. And the gospel assures me that this glorious God is for me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who? Who can be against us? Or as the hymn writer put it beautifully so long ago, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven, the city of destruction, the celestial city, 
a hill called difficulty. Oh, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask you to impress these truths deep within our hearts. May your word be implanted within this day that it might shape our thoughts, shape our emotions, our desires, our dreams, our ambitions, bringing our will into conformity with your own. And our Father, we do pray for this strength of which we have spoken this day. At times, our shoulders droop. At times, our knees buckle. At times, life feels like a burden upon another burden. And so we look to you, our God, and we celebrate that we are your children. And we ask you to strengthen us for our good and for your eternal glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.